Good morning. We are continuing our series today to the married and unmarried, so we've now come to part six. And the first couple of weeks of this series, we laid the foundation as to what the Bible says about marriage in like sort of fundamental ways. We talked about what a marriage is for. We talked about what a marriage is. And once we established that a marriage is to become one, then we applied that to different groups. We did one sermon where we talked to people who are unmarried, and we talked about how that applies to them. We talked specifically about not being unequally yoked. The next week, we talked about married to, specifically to married people. We talked about submission in marriage. Um, then last week, we took a, a, a turn, I think, that's just a little bit different thematically. Um, I asked our associate pastor, Doug Davison, if he would teach us some things he learned. And so that's why last week's sermon was titled, Things I've Learned, because I said to Doug, hey, you've, you've met with a lot of married people who've come to you for marriage counseling. Would you be willing to take one of the weeks in the series and just tell us what you've learned? And he said, sure. And so that's what he did last week. And then my wife said to me, like, well, you, you should also take a week and talk about what you've learned. You know, you've learned things. So I said, okay, so this week is called Things I've Learned Too. <laughs> and I'm going to do pretty much the, the same thing that Doug did last week as far as just share some things with you that I've learned. They, I'm going to share with you three things this morning. Um, they are not necessarily related to each other. So it might sound like three like little mini sermons instead of one cohesive thing. But I wanted to share these three things with you. Um, and as you'll see, the, the three points, only one of these points is exclusively about marriage. The other two points are general principles that I'm going to apply to marriage. So each one of the, the things I'm going to share with you, all three points, are attached, like they come from a Bible verse, like they're attached to a Bible verse. So I'm going to teach a Bible verse and a point. And um, what you'll see is two of the points and two of the Bible verses that go with those points are actually not specifically marriage Bible verses, and they're not, like, they're not unique to marriage. That, that, that two of the points you're just going to see are, are things that the Bible says, and I'm going to apply them to marriage. And then one of the two points, and the passage that's connected to it, is definitely specifically about marriage. The passage is specifically addressing husbands, and so I will teach that when the time comes. So those are the three things. So two that are not exclusively about marriage, and one that is. And that's going to be, that's what we're going to be to do today. Okay, three things. So here's point number one. If I'm just giving you advice based on things I've learned the past couple of decades, this is piece number one. Um, learn how to argue your spouse's side. This is the first piece of information I'll give you. Learn how to argue your spouse's side. This is, the idea of this is you learn how to argue your spouse's side of an argument. And this has been very helpful advice. This was given to me when I was in my early 20s when I had first gotten married, and it has been very helpful. Before I explain what it means, let me go ahead and just read to you the verse that is attached to it. And by attached to it, I mean I believe that I'm going to read you a verse, and I think that this is an application of this verse. Um, the verse is Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul's talking to the people in Philippi, and he says to them, these Christians, he says, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have you heard this before? Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you read this verse, and if you read the verses that are around it, you will see it's not specifically a marriage verse, right? This is just a verse that's given to Christians. Christians are supposed to look out not only for their own interests, but also to the interests of others. But if this is a verse that applies to all Christians then of course, it applies to married Christians, right? So married Christians should look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of their spouse. So when I first got married, when I was in my early 20s, and my wife and I were you know, living in the house together for the first time, um, I figured out, I think fairly quickly, that if she was going to argue the way she argues, and I was going to argue the way I argue, just based on our personalities, I figured out pretty quickly that I was going to win most of the arguments in our house. 
Okay, I figured out that I just, my personality, I have this sort of litigator's personality. Like there's a little lawyer that lives inside of me. I think he's always been there. Like even when I was like 10, like negotiating over toys and stuff. And I just, I'm a debater. I'm stubborn. I think that my wife has a personality that's much more like after a while, she would be the one that's more likely to go, okay, fine, you're right. Right? Where, so where, even if I'm not right, she would say, fine, you're right. right. Whereas I would never say you're right to someone that I thought I would die before I would say you're right to someone who's not right. And so, so because of our personalities, it dawned on me at some point, like, I'm going to win most of the arguments, okay? Which some of you might even go, well, that's great. Good for you. How cool is that to go into a marriage where you win all the arguments? No, it is not good. It is not good. You don't want to win the arguments when you're wrong. I mean, you don't realize, think, no, it'd be great. It'd be great to win them all. No, it's not. It's not good. When you win an argument that you shouldn't have won because you were actually wrong, you now have this false information. You may go into the next stage of your life and you're sitting there not prepared. You're going to go into it and go, okay, now we all agree, right? This is, this is a good idea. My idea was a good idea, right? And there's your wife going, oh, yes, honey, what a great idea. And the children, oh, dad, you're right, you're right. And then you step into it and it blows up in your face. And you're like, why did it go wrong? I'll tell you why it went wrong. Because you won an argument you weren't supposed to win. You thought you were right when you weren't, right? You don't want to be right all the time unless you are right all the time and no one's right all the time. So you've got to value truth over winning. You've got to value what's good for both people in the marriage over winning. And so in the midst of that period of time in my life, I heard a pastor say this. In fact, the pastor said it in a, in a more gendered way than this. I will say, the way, the way I heard it, the pastor said, men, learn to argue her side. And I took that as an exhortation to me. Now, I've changed it because I think that this applies to both sexes. So I say, learn how to argue your spouse's size. Because in a room, your spouse's side. Because in a room this size... There are lots of marriages, right? Lots of relationships here. And there are probably going to be several occasions where it is the wife who is the little lawyer. It's the wife who's the debater and persuader and the stubborn one. And so I say this to whoever it applies to, okay? Learn to argue their side. So when I heard men learn to argue her side, um, I took it as something that was supposed to apply to my life. And so this is how it worked. There I was. We'd been married, I don't know, a couple of years. And we would get into a fight. You know, we'd get into an argument and she would want to do it this way and I'd do it, you know, my way and let's, let's figure this out. And what I started to do is just in the middle of the argument, I would pause it. And we would just stop the argument in the middle of it. Okay, we don't know who's right. It's not over yet. We're going to pause it. And I would go into another room of the house and I would ask myself this question. What would I say if I were her lawyer? <laughs> right? Like... If I were going to try to make her case, because isn't that kind of a lot of times, that's what a lawyer does. They try to present the best case possible from the point of view of their client. So what if I were on her side, which hello, I'm married to her. Of course I'm on her side. But like, what if, like in the midst of this, what if I were her advocate? What would I say to me? And I would think it through. And then sometimes I'd be like, oh, and then I'd go into the other room and I'd say, okay, are you basically saying this and this and this? And she would look at me and go, yes, that's what I said. And I would go, well, yeah, you're right then. And so I don't, I don't win arguments as often as I used to. But I'll tell you, we discover a lot more wisdom along the way now. So, um, oh, and one other thing. You, you may be right, you may be wrong. In the cases where you're wrong, you argue their side so that you can see it from their point of view and maybe see the things that are wrong with the things that you're thinking. But even in the cases where that's not the case, like even in the case where you go and you think about it from their point of view and you still go, no, no, I think I'm right on this. 
the exercise of going through, like figuring out and seeing it from their point of view, even if you don't change your mind, just looking at it through their eyes has the potential to take sort of a hateful fight and turn it into a discussion. Just the actual exercise of just seeing it from their side can turn it into something that's so much healthier a lot of times. And if you're here today and you're a single person, um, I want you to notice that everything I'm saying right now really isn't unique to marriage. Like you can try this on your friends. Right? You're frustrated with them. Go in the room just a minute. Write, write, write an email to yourself as if you're them, you know, defending what happened. And I'm telling you, you can see how this will calm down some of those fights as well. Look not only to your own arguments, but also to the arguments of others. You following? All right, number two. Now, this one is specifically to married people, and this one is specifically to just one sex, husbands. It's because the verse that I'm going to teach you is specifically to husbands. So I'm just teaching this just to husbands. I'm only talking to the men in the room for this one. Point number two is men, use your strength for your wife's good and never for her harm. Use your strength for your wife's good and never for her harm. I'm going to show you where I get this from. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. This is what it says. It says, husbands, so the verse is written to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I just want you to get that. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I have only taught this Bible verse one time that I can recall. And the one time I taught it, I taught it to a room full of men. And so today is different than that. Um, And and today is a little bit similar in that I am only speaking to men right now. Um, But this is the first time I've ever taught this verse with women in the room listening. And because of that extra dynamic, it's just a little interesting because now I got to deal with the part of the verse that says with an understanding of their weaker nature. I was in a room with all men. I said this. Nobody even, nobody even asked a question, okay? I just went right through that. Okay, but now there's a bunch of ladies in the room, and I can imagine there's some of you going, yeah, I don't like that part, the understanding of weaker nature. Why has God got to say that? Why is it all sexist? What's, I don't like it. And so this is what I want you to know, first of all. I think in this verse, I think the word weaker here does not mean inferior. I think it means less strong, which is what the word weaker means, Right? Men are stronger than women, okay? Generally speaking. Of course, there are exceptions to that, okay? You go, well, no, not always. I know not always. Sure, there's going to be some occasion where there's like a bodybuilder woman and she marries a scrawny guy and she's the stronger one. That happens. You're going to have marriages where like there's the woman is a black belt in karate and the man is in a wheelchair and throughout their life... I didn't think that was... First service didn't think that was funny. They were... They were sad for the guy. You guys don't care. Um, In that situation, the wife is going to protect her husband far more than her husband is going to protect the wife, right? Of course that's the case. There are certainly situations like that. There are situations where a wife is stronger socially or stronger financially than her husband is. But generally speaking, and throughout history, nine times out of ten, a husband is in a position of power relative to his wife. And when you look at this verse, which, which admits that, and then look at the second half of the verse, I think that you see what the gist of it is saying is, don't take advantage of that power imbalance. 
I mean, look what the verse says. It says, husbands, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature. You're supposed to understand it. But then what, right? Why? Because you're going to treat her how? It doesn't say understand her weaker nature so that you could take advantage of that and this is going to awesome and you get your way more often than her. That's not what it says. Understanding their weaker nature, yet showing them, what's the word? Honor. You recognize the situation so that you can show her honor. Honor as what? As co-heirs. In this context, the word co-heirs pretty much means equals, right? That the grace of life is inherited by both of us. She's a co-heir. So you are to honor her, not take advantage of her as a co-heir, as an equal. And to honor her as your equal, you should not overpower her. Now, what does that look like? You go, okay, I shouldn't overpower. What's that mean? This is what I think it looks like. I'll just give you an example. Imagine a marriage. Imagine two people are married. They're in a house somewhere and they're in an argument. In fact, I want you to imagine this argument has gotten out of hand. It's getting really bad. And the wife is screaming at her husband at the top of her lungs, okay? Face is turning red, arms swinging around, screaming at full volume. And then I want you to imagine the husband is there, and he also is screaming back at her at the top of his lungs, arms flying through the air, the vein in his forehead's throbbing. Okay, so she's screaming with all her strength and he's screaming with all his strength, right? They're fighting. And this is what I'm telling you about that situation. It's not a fair fight. That's not a fair fight. You might go, no, yes, it is. She's screaming with all her might. He's screaming with all his might. Yeah, and it's not a fair fight. One of those two people is scarier looking in that moment. One of those two people is more intimidating. One of those two people is more likely to back down even if they're not wrong. So men, don't use the power that God gave you to protect her to hurt her. Why? Look at what the verse says. You do it, right? Showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that, so it's not like just there's no reason, there's a because. Because why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. That's huge. This is an unusual Bible verse in that I can't think of any other place in the New Testament where it says, do this, um, and if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. And I will tell you right now, I'm not even like 100% sure what this verse means as far as your prayers will not be hindered, but I've thought about it quite a bit, and I think I kind of know. It's saying you've got to be careful with the way that you are treating this other person so that your prayers will not be hindered. As I thought about it, it seems that to me there's only two people who could hinder your prayers, you or God, right? For prayers to be hindered, it would either mean you stopped praying or God stopped listening. So in context, it doesn't seem possible to me that it means you stopped praying. I can't imagine Peter was saying, have an understanding of their weaker nature, honor them as co-heirs of the grace of life, or you'll stop praying. No, I think it's saying you better do this or he'll stop listening. And if so, that's huge. That's scary. The creator of the universe, do you really want the creator of the universe to stop listening to you? If that's what it means, to me, it fits with the personality of God in the Old Testament. I remember when we, two years ago, we were preaching through the book of Proverbs, and there were multiple Proverbs that I came across that talked about like the oppressors and the vulnerable, right? There are people that are oppressing vulnerable people, whether it be widows or whether it be, you know, young children or whatever it may be, or, you know, people that are foreigners, but it was always this don't oppress these people who are vulnerable. And it seems to me, if I remember correctly, almost every proverb basically said, don't do that because God's going to take the other side. God's going to take the side of the vulnerable person against you. 
So that's point number two. So here we go. So learn how to argue your spouse's side. Number two, men, use your strength for your wife's good and never for her harm. And then number three, value God's will over your comfort. So what I want to do is I want to draw a picture for you um, of something that I taught one time in a marriage counseling session. But before I draw it, um, I, I want to read you a passage of scripture that I think is the foundation for what I'm about to draw. If I can get you to understand this passage, then you will realize the thing I'm going to draw is biblical. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter of the Bible where the writer of Hebrews is saying um, that he's listing a whole bunch of people and saying that these people were approved because of their faith, okay? There were all these different people. He's mostly referring to people from before the time period of the New Testament. And these people are, they were approved because of their faith. They trusted in God. They believed in him. They took it at his word. It changed their life. They acted in a particular way because of what they believed. And they were approved because of their faith. And this is how that chapter ends. It says, and what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who, now notice this, by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And all these were, look at this, all of these were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. So at, this, at the end of this chapter, he's talked about all these different people. And he said, these people had faith. They were all approved by God because of their faith. And he even says, and they haven't even really been rewarded for their faith yet because God is waiting to reward everybody at the same time. But as he describes all of these people who were approved through their faith, I mean, did you notice it starts off with specific names, right? Gideon and Samson and David. But then it just starts describing people, right? It just, without names. It's just they're the people who, by faith, conquered kingdoms and administered justice and quenched the waging of fire. And if you look at this list, there's about 22 things that it lists about these people. And depending on how you count the phrases. And it's about 11 of them that are positive and 11 of them are negative. I don't know if you noticed as I read it. Did you notice it started off really positive and then went real negative? So the first 11 are all positive. These people had faith in God and they administered justice, and they obtained promises, and they conquered kingdoms, and they gained strength after being weak, and they became mighty in battle. There's like 11 good, victorious, happy things, right? These people followed God, and they had a great week, right? These people followed God, and they had victory. And then halfway through verse 35, what happens to these people changes, but it's the same people. Like, it's still talking about people who are approved by their faith. But, but starting in verse 35, they get described as people who experience mockings and scourgings and imprisonment. And some were stoned and some wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins. But they're all the same people, the people who trusted in God. And so that's the thing I wanted you to understand. Before I draw the thing I'm going to draw, I want you to understand that your trust in God, like your faithfulness to him and your belief in him, this, I'm going to take him at his word, your trust in God can bring victory and joy into your life. Or it could bring suffering and difficulty into your life. 
That's really obvious in this passage. By faith, they, bunch of good things. Oh, and some of them, by faith, bunch of bad things. Your faith in God can bring victory and joy or suffering and difficulty. And so once you understand that is clear in Scripture, then I think that this should make sense. So this is something that I one time was doing. I was in a marriage counseling situation, and I was counseling the people. I don't even do marriage counseling very much anymore because I don't think I'm particularly good at it. But this particular time, a, a, a thing came to my mind that I really liked, and I wrote it on a piece of paper, and then I pinned it to my bulletin board, and I've kept it ever since. And you will see that the principle in this actually applies way beyond marriage, but I always think of it as connected to marriage because that was the occasion that I first thought of it. So what I did is I drew um, a, a big box, a big square on the piece of paper, and then I broke the square into uh, four quadrants, like four boxes inside it. And I wrote above this column, God's will. And so this side of the box represents the people and their lives who trust in God and they obey him because they're following him, right? Because they trust in him. And then I wrote above this column, outside God's will. And so this would be someone who does not take God at his word, does not believe in him, does not live for him because they don't trust him. And then for this row, I wrote words like happiness and contentment and joy. And for this row, I wrote difficulty and suffering. And it's important to realize that these are four stations in life. These are four places you can find yourself in life. You can be someone who is following God's will, trusting him, believing in him, obeying him, and it produces in your life happiness and contentment and joy. You can be someone who follows God's will and you're living a happy life. You can also be someone who's in the middle of God's will, trusting him, following him, and you're in the middle of difficulty and suffering. Right? You can be someone who conquered kingdoms and shut the mouths of lions and escaped the sword and became weak after, um, you know, became strong after being weak. And you can be someone who's wandering around in sheepskins and goatskins and mocked and scourged. Okay, so that's true. We know that from the Bible. And then the outside God's will is the same thing. Like this, you've got the same versions of that. You can be someone who is outside God's will, right? Not trusting in Him, not believing in Him, and experiencing in this life happiness and contentment, right? You, you can have victories. There are times when the person who wins the battle and gets the kingdom is someone who is not following after God. Sometimes a tyrant who's in charge of a country attacks another country that's innocent and smaller and wins the battle. And he's happy and he's victorious, right? And he's outside God's will. There are times when a bully might go up to someone who's weaker than them and beat them up and steal their money. And they are what? They are outside God's will. But they're happy about it, Right? I won the fight and I got more money than I had before. And so the point here with this box is sin is pleasant for a season. And then you can also be outside of God's will, not following God, not trusting him, him, and dealing with difficulty and suffering and misery in your life. Okay. All of these are possible stations in life. And so I labeled them. Okay. A, B, C, D. And the people that came to me that day, um, and this is true always, whenever somebody comes for marriage counseling, whether it's they go to their pastor or they go to a therapist or they go to their community group leader or whatever, but they go, I'm having trouble with my marriage, will you help me? The people that do that are always people that are in B and D. B and D people are the people who go and seek out help, right? Pretty much always. If you're in A and C, you don't go and get counseling. If you're in A and C, you don't seek help, right? If you are following God's will and it's producing victory and happiness and contentment in your life, then there's no, there's no reason to go talk to anybody to figure out how to solve that. And if you are outside of God's will, not following God, but in a station of your life where there's contentment and joy and happiness, 
then you're not going to go seek help, right? Because you don't need any. Everything's fine. Which is why box C is actually a very dangerous situation. I, I, this is just not really about marriage, but I'm going to throw it in there. I think one of the reasons that the Bible warns about the dangers of wealth have you noticed that in the Bible, for those of you who read the Bible, where it talks about being rich as if it's like not even a good thing and it's scary, you can, be so, you can be rich and there's a problem with it. I think it's because there are people who are living outside of God's will, but their riches become somewhat of a pain reliever and they're happy and they're content and, and, and the pain reliever is masking their problem and they don't seek out God and they don't find him. And so it's a very bad situation to be in, but that's another sermon. The people that come for marriage counseling or the people that ask their friends for advice, they're in B and D. And obviously the goal, if you're a Christian, is to get to A. And so this is what I said, to the, and, and just so you understand, everybody wants to be an A, at least every Christian for sure. Everybody wants to do what God's called them to do and have a happy, content, joyful life. Everybody wants that. And nobody wants D. You don't ever have to convince anyone to like avoid D, okay? Nobody wants, no, not even non-Christian, nobody wants to be outside of the will of the creator of the universe in the midst of difficulty and suffering and misery, okay? Nobody wants D ever. So this is what I said to the people that day, and this is what I say to all of you. Of course we want A. Of course that's the goal, to be in the midst of God's will, having a happy life. But if you can't get to A right away, do you default to B or C? If you can't get into box A this week, do you default to B or to C? Because that decision will reveal a lot about the future of your marriage. There are plenty of times, I think, throughout history where people have pursued a divorce that was outside of God's will or an adulterous affair or something like that because they weren't in A anymore and they were in B long enough and they were tired of it and they decided, I'm going to move to C and yes, it's outside of God's will, but I don't care. I'm getting my happiness back. And so it's really important to ask yourself, if you can't get into A, what are you going to pick? Is it going to be B or is it going to be C? Because I will tell you this right now. First of all, this is maybe obvious to everybody. A is better than B. But here's the thing. B is better than C. A is better than B, but B is better than C. And I'm telling you, most Americans do not believe that. Most Americans do not believe B is better than C. Most Americans who call themselves Christians don't believe B is better than C. But I'm telling you, B is better than C. Now, there is one thing that can happen, and the Bible talks about this a lot. I mean, this is the position of the Bible, and I think the Bible has lots of examples of where you can be right here, okay? I think there are lots of examples in the Bible where you can be living your life and you are simultaneously experiencing suffering and joy. That you're right there on the line. That you have, there, there is a contentment and a difficulty in your life at the same time. I think there's multiple places in the Bible that show this. Probably one of the most famous ones is the one where Paul wrote a letter from prison talking about how content he was. Have you heard that one? Yeah, it's a real famous one. So I'm, I'm not going to do that one because everybody knows that one. All right, I'm going to do, let's do a not famous one. We're going to go to one in Hebrews. So this is, right now I'm on the passage that says they wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins. So if you're there, we're just flipping back one page, okay? The chapter before that one, Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see this. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrews and he says this, uh, Hebrews 10 verse 32. He says, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, 
you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, right? He's referring to a time when they were dealing with this, right? They were dealing with sufferings. What time? He says it was the earlier days. He said, remember back in the day when you had first been enlightened? I think that's his way of saying when you first became a Christian, okay? The back then, he says, when you first became enlightened, he's saying, hey, those of you who are believers in Jesus now, remember way back when, it, when you first figured it out? Remember when, when it all clicked for you? Remember when you were first enlightened and you first understood the gospel? Remember back in those days when you experienced a hard struggle with sufferings? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. I think this was very common at certain times in the Roman Empire where you became, a, you became enlightened, right? You became a follower of Jesus and believed in the gospel, and then you were persecuted for it. And he's saying, remember when that happened, when it first happened and you were persecuted, or sometimes it was your friends that were persecuted? Verse 34, for you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with, now what's the word? Joy. You accepted with joy, what? The confiscation of your possessions. That's a weird sentence, isn't it? He's saying, remember back when you first became a Christian? Remember when some of you were getting thrown in jail? Remember when some of you were being persecuted and some of you weren't, and then the ones of you that were, and then you weren't? And you remember when you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions? Remember when things were difficult and you were so happy to be a part of Jesus' people? He was saying, remember when you experienced these two things at the same time as you followed God? knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Obviously, we want A. If we can't have A, sometimes we have to pick B and C with the understanding that sometimes, at the very least, even if the suffering doesn't go away, we can get to here by the grace of God. And this, I hope, is obvious to you, those, especially those of you who are not married. Obviously, this principle applies beyond marriage. I just think of this related to marriage because it was a marriage counseling thing that made me first think of it. But obviously, this applies to all of life. You, as a follower of Jesus, I'm just asking you right now, if you can't have A this week, are you going to default to B or to C? Because the answer to that question will reveal quite a bit about who you are and who you will become. So let's review our three points real quick. Number one, learn how to argue your spouse's side. Number two, men, use your strength for your wife's good and never for her harm. And then number three, value God's will over your comfort, eventually knowing that you maybe can even have both at the same time. And if you fail in these areas, and of course there will be multiple people in this room who have failed in these particular ways, maybe there was one of these three things that more than the others you went, oh... I might have skipped if I'd have known, right? This is, that's what I'm doing wrong. And I don't even, it's not comfortable to think about it. Well, you need to think about it for a little bit. There may be some of you going, no, this whole, like I'm like zero for three. This whole sermon's a big depressor, okay? <laughs> so here's the thing, whether, whatever you are, if you find yourself failing in these areas, okay? Not looking to the other person's interests, but rather to only your own using your strength for someone's harm rather than their good, or, or saying, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to get back my happiness. I want to remind you, especially if you're a Christian, I want to remind you of the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross for even your very worst sins. 
And so what you are to do is you are to repent and believe in him. Remember when you first became a Christian and you repented and believed in him? And maybe it's now months later or years later, but what you need to do is you, you repent. Again, you don't just repent one time when you first become a Christian. You continue to repent and you continue to believe in Jesus and you thank God for his forgiveness. And then you turn and you walk in a new way of life in that area of your life. And you thank God for who he is. You thank God, oh, Jesus, thank you so much, not only for saving me from the judgment that my sins deserve, but at least in a partial way for now, saving me even from my sins in this life in the sense that I don't have to stay stuck in them. You don't have to stay stuck in them if you know Jesus. You can walk into a new way of life, and you must. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity to share these things, and I pray you would help us to be people. I pray that you would form us into people who conform to your word. I pray that we would be people, both those of us who are married and unmarried, that we would be people who look out for the interests of others. And as we fight, that we would be looking for other people's perspectives and not make like an idol of being right or, or winning the, the, the battle. I pray for those of us in this room who are men. It's probably very difficult. We've never been women. And so we don't know what it looks like on the other side of our screaming or the other side of our threatening or the other side of, our, you know, if you do, I will. But I pray you'd help us to be people who use our strength for our wife's good and her protection and never for her harm. I pray you'd help us to never take advantage of that, never to do it again, or, or, or at, very, at least by the Bible, that we would ask you for forgiveness and say we want to walk in your ways from now on as best as we can until you come back, Jesus, or as best as we can until we die. So I pray you'd help us to repent when we do not treat other people, especially our wives, like co-heirs and with honor. And I pray, I know that this has got to be true of everyone in this room. Every one of us at some point has said, I'm going to get my happiness back, whatever it costs. And we, we repent and we ask you for forgiveness. We pray that you would help us to be people who, even if we must live with difficulty and joy at the same time, we will do that knowing that one day you will get rid of all the difficulties when you reward everyone at once. And we look forward to that day and we thank you for it. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for grace. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for the ability to walk in new ways. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.